The day before we reached Karimaka, I was lost in thought. I thought of all the days in that jungle, the days we trekked the snows and slopes of the mountains. But what I thought about most was the day on the beach in Panama, the day Francisco drew his line in the sand and divided the men. The right side all went back to Spain, the other side forward on to hell. I stared into Francisco's eyes for the longest time that day. I could not let go. I swirled in his eyes and was enraptured by the symphony of the impossible. I didn't know if he was a guiding light or the angel of desolation, but I knew one thing was for sure. He was still our leader. I saw the rage settle in his mind. I felt his words, and I was still entranced. They were righteous and absurd words. Francisco. Poor Francisco. The man who lost it all. And all twelve men crossed the line and joined Francisco that day. I was one of them. It was a very easy decision. In my mind, going back to Spain meant I had failed. I couldn't imagine returning as a broken man with only a sad story that no one wanted to hear. I remember looking back at the men on the boat that day. They were momentarily gleeful, but I saw they all looked dead inside. Dead, but still breathing. If I were to return to Spain, I wanted to come back as the victor, not as the pauper. Not as poor as my father. So I ventured deeper into hell, and the jungle took my soul. Since that day on the beach, two years had passed, and in those two years we headed down the coast to the great land of the south to find that illustrious city. We were to be the kings we longed to be as boys. We were to find the cities in speech and live as God intended, rulers of a rich and prosperous land, rulers of the great cities of gold. But it never happened. Not until that day. Not until Kalimaka. Hours had passed, and more thoughts crept into my mind. Then I remembered the last confession I had made. It might have been only a year ago. I couldn't remember. But I remembered the words and how I said them to Father Rodriguez. In truth, confession was the last thing on my mind. I was hesitant to tell him anything, but for some reason I trusted him. I told him my sins. I told him every one. But I did only because I felt pity for him. Because a simple fact remained. Father Rodriguez was the loneliest man I had ever met and I felt as if he just needed company. Was it lust, Sardina? Lust, Father. Yes, it was. Lust of all things. Lust of women, to begin with. The native women who I saw in between the skirmishes were as naked as the day they were born, but they were all beautiful. Their breasts were supple and their eyes were inviting. And as we reached Panama, the women greeted us as gods, and gods we were. Those I wanted, I took. Those who ran, I chased. I chased until I got, and when I got, I devoured. 
the want was all I had. But it was tremendous. Are women the only thing you lusted for? No. What else, Sardina? Blood. Blood? Blood. The blood from the natives and everyone I had killed. Every bone I had pierced through. And every face that suddenly went cold. Thou shalt not kill. Within reason. Was it wrong? I couldn't tell anymore. But blood was only proxy to the real lust that brought me there. And as my confession continued, my earliest memory swirled in my mind. I thought of Cortez returning to Spain. That day might have been the happiest day in all my life. I remembered the parade going on for hours and hours, and how astonishing it was for me. For it showed me what could be done, and what men were capable of doing. And there they were, men amongst men, men of honor, our heroes, the conquerors, the conquistadors. How I cheered and roared, how I longed and wanted. And you worshipped them? I did. I see. I wasn't sure how he could. How could he see? What he couldn't see was what I couldn't tell him. I couldn't tell him that my god was replaced a long time ago. That I worshipped not just the conquistadors, but a new god. A god who never judged nor commanded. A god who just glimmered. And each day I said a prayer and was ever more resolved to get closer to it. My god had become gold, and I held it sacred. And, like a true believer, I adored and sung its praises. Those are quite horrible things, my son. I know, father. The memory fully died, and I was glad. During the evening, I saw the Pizarros huddled near a fire, and I studied them from a distance. Their eyes were wide, and their stares were wider, and they drew sticks in the sand. First was Hernando, the reasonable, compassionate, and second eldest brother. Then, Gonzalo, who was short and utterly cruel. And last, Juan, who was silent, but not the least timid. And indeed, Juan might have been the smartest of all the Pizarros. God knows what he'd have been if he had remained in Spain. But what all the brothers had in common was their allegiance to their elder sibling, Francisco. And the dominant emotion they shared was fear. One could argue Francisco scared the hell out of them from such a young age. It was only natural for them to follow him halfway across the world to explore and conquer an unknown land. And I would agree with that argument. I guess certain things never change. As the night progressed, Francisco talked with his brothers soberly and answered all their questions. Then he drank a jug of wine and told them the truth. I watched him hold up the nugget of gold I had found. He passed it on to each of his brothers. They took turns examining it underneath the dim light of the fire. And although the nugget was coarse and rough along its edges, it glimmered and sparkled. That was all that mattered. Later that evening, I saw the Almagros and their fire. 
They were both quite drunk already. But deep down inside, I knew without the Almagros we would not have gone this far. For Almagro was the man with the better tools. Most of the horses were his, not to mention all the cannons and crossbows. But the Almagros, like the Bizarros, knew internally that this land ahead was worth all the suffering and all the gambles. For suffering alone, one can adore, but gambles are another story. It was quite a gamble on both sides to trust each other as long as they did. And I should have known then that trust and belief, especially trust and belief in other men, only goes so far. Towards the end of the night, Soto and I discussed the rumors. Rumors that we were closer to the city than we realized. Rumors that the surrounding tribes stopped fighting a long while ago. And that if we could make peace with one tribe, we could use them as allies and fight off the other. Yet, even if these rumors were true, I couldn't move as fast as Soto had thought. And I was amazed at his fluidity. I held a black pawn in my hand, and Soto gave me a cold stare. For nearly a year, Soto had taught me the game. I was horrible at it, but each night there was another opportunity to learn. He set up the board. It looked crowded and confusing as always. There were two armies, 32 pieces, 64 squares, black and white. Then Soto aligned the pieces. His eyes were focused. Again, I thought of the rules and the pieces, and about the first night Soto taught me to play the two opposing kings who were worthless, but nonetheless the object of capture, the all-powerful queen who could move any way she wanted, the bishops, the knights, and again Soto's voice drifted into my reverie. Don't forget about pawns, Sardina. They may seem worthless, but they are priceless when you need them, which is all the time. Each night I had gotten better, and each night I lost. But Soto was a compassionate teacher. In my days with Balboa, I remember Soto playing the game. He played with an eerie ease that some people saw as boredom. And then there were moments where I felt as if he had invented the game. Those moments were common. He never let me win, but he showed me what I was doing wrong. And although I truly couldn't comprehend everything, he'd always comfort me with words of encouragement. Every time you play, you learn something new. Then I asked him how long he played the game. All my life, Sardina. Soto was different, that was for certain. He knew the rules in both chess and life. He wasn't a king, nor was he as predictable as a bishop or rook. He was indeed a knight. He moved in his own mysterious accord. Although it took me a great deal of time, I learned more about the game, both on the board and out there in the jungle. And I finally understood how the game worked and how the pieces moved. And with that knowledge, I felt the content of my self-awareness, for I knew I was still a pawn.
and a pawn's life, nevertheless, was still a life to be lived. Then the next day arrived. We finally received word of the tribe. The guides called them the Incas. We found other guides who said they would take us over there, so we trekked south. We were less than a hundred men and thirty horses. In the coolness of the mountain ice and beyond the sharp and deep trenches of snow and rock were the valleys below. Their green slopes spread far and wide. Even in the fog, they looked majestic. But all those views came in briefly, for in an hour we reached the jungle's interior. The heat grew unbearable, and there were snakes all over. Most of them had dropped from tall trees and onto our armor. We slashed and cut each one, but there were simply too many, and it slowed our momentum greatly. When we got to the pass, we crossed the stretch of black rocks, and there we found a slew of scattered skulls. Skulls shaded yellow, fading, solemn, and chipped. Skulls fresh and not entirely ridden of flesh. There seemed to be a thousand of them. The translator said it was a grave of an unsuccessful tribe who were at constant war with the Incas, and these were their remnants. As we went further down, I heard Francisco bicker on with Almagro, and they continued through the morning fog. Then at midday, we reached the base of the mountain and saw another horrendous sight. It was our warm welcoming, as Soto suggested. The guards pointed, and there in view was a line of a dozen heads stacked on wooden palisades that seemed to go on for a quarter of a mile. The trail of blood was fresh, and the ever-present stink of death hovered in the air. After we passed another mile on the valley's jungle, I spotted the guides conversing with one another. Then the friars interrupted and asked again, and when the guides responded, I could see the friars' faces light up. The translators went on and on. Then the guides brought back specimens, and we held them in our hands. They were little chunks of amber stone, gold, just like the one I had found, but if melted, could rule the world. How much there was was anyone's guess. Word spread, and the men shouted, and we forged deeper into hell.